Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come again this morning to worship you and thank you, Lord, again for who you are. And thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for revealing the gospel to us. For this gospel message has been hidden and is still hidden to many people. And yet, by your grace, you were pleased to reveal it to us, these whom you gave to your Son, Jesus Christ, that by it we may know who Christ is, and by it we may know how to have life and forgiveness of sins. But I pray now for your blessing upon this teaching, asking for the right words to communicate your word, asking for your Holy Spirit, to help us with understanding. Lord, we pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. May you open John chapter 11. John chapter 11. John chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. John records for us and says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and a sister Martha, it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and his sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. And this is our second installment of teaching from the same verses. Last week we had teaching that was titled Sickness Not Unto Death, and that was part one. And because of the understanding that the Lord gave me in this chapter, I thought that we would have a second installment of that teaching, Sickness Not Unto Death, Part 2. Why, why, why do that? Because when you are reading the book of John and you are reading this part of the story, we have a threefold understanding of the story of the death and life that was happening, the death and resurrection that happened in this story. First and foremost, we have the death and resurrection of Lazarus. And then we have in that story an installment or a picture or a preview of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then we also have a promise of the death and resurrection of the elect of God, those whom the Father loves, those whom Jesus loves. So the story of Lazarus, was more than about the death and resurrection of Lazarus. Rather, it was God's picture and commentary, as it were, of the bigger story of salvation. This story reveals to us God's purpose in the sickness of sin and his means or way of dealing with that. His means or way of overcoming and removing death. It shows us the predicament and desperation that sin and death and condemnation 
has put mankind and their inability, our inability to do anything about it as to reverse it. So human weakness is clearly shown in man's inability to stop or prevent death. There could not be any clearer picture of man's utter inability to do anything in salvation than their inability to prevent or stop death from happening. And so that is why the scriptures will come and say in Romans 5, 6, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. So a sinner, a sinner is one who has no strength and that means one who is weak. That means one who is helpless to help themselves, to save themselves. And so Christ had to come, he had to die, and not only that, he died at the right time, at the right time to redeem us who were the ungodly, us who were enemies of God, enemies with God. The gospel, therefore, is good news and is only good news to those who are helpless and those who are ungodly. And as long as you think you have strength and as long as you think you are godly, as long as you think it's okay between you and God, then the gospel will never be good news because you're not listening to it as a sinner. So the gospel is only good news when one listens to what God is saying as a sinner. But the issue that we have now that has come because of sin is death. How do we overcome death? Because the one who overcomes death also is overcome condemnation. Because sin, death, and condemnation, they go together. Death can only be overcome by the death of one who has power over it. One who has life in himself and that means one who is God. One who can die, but still in that death, still possess power to raise himself back to life. And so now when we start to talk like that, we begin to talk about someone by the name of Jesus. <laughs> and I'm sure that sounds familiar. And so the, the problem that we have is that man being born under condemnation being born under the power of sin, have no power to resurrect ourselves out of that power, out of that condemnation. So without Christ coming, death and sin continue to reign over all men. But when this Son of God comes and he dies, he comes and he willingly subjects himself to the power of death he willingly subjects himself to the power of death. And then he rises, and when he rises, he overcomes the grave on behalf of all those whom he loves because he is the resurrection and the life. And so, like I said, when we begin to talk about someone who is able to die and resurrect by themselves, we are beginning to talk about the Jesus-only territory, the Jesus-only lane, the narrow way. So Jesus alone was capable to remove the sting of death and to take the case of the law 
and to neutralize that curse. And that means he alone saves and accomplished the work of salvation. Many this morning, in a lot of places, they were hearing or they're going to hear about Mary. They're going to be praying to Mary that she may intercede for them on their behalf before God. But Mary is not one who was appointed to remove the sting of death. Mary has no power to remove condemnation. Mary does not serve and does not help anyone to get saved. The problem with Mary is the same problem that you and I have. Our works do not serve and cannot serve and do not help us to get saved. It is too late for one who has been born in Adam to be saved by their own works. We are so late to this game. It is too late to wipe the slate clean as to work a righteousness that gives life. But not only is it too late, works is not the way that God determined to give life. God never intended to save mankind by their own obedience. This is something that men do not understand. God never ever intended to give life and righteousness outside the obedience of Christ. He never ever intended to do that. So even if you had not sinned, God was never going to give you everlasting life and righteousness on account of your own obedience. That was never his purpose. So, God determined to give life through the righteousness of Christ. Why? Because there is more to salvation than just you going to heaven, than just you having eternal life. The work of salvation is an eternal purpose of God from eternity. And God determined by it to glorify himself, glorify his son in that work. And so the story of sin, the story of death and salvation was told from the beginning of creation as a mystery. The story of the gospel has always been a mystery until the revelation that came with Jesus even more with the teaching of the apostles. Men did not realize that the scriptures actually were testifying of the gospel. Okay. So in Genesis, actually what we're going to do is, I purpose to prove to you from this scripture, and we're going to tie our teaching from John 11, almost later to the end of the sermon. I intended to show you the purpose of God in salvation and how God has been telling the story of salvation mostly from Genesis 1 to 3 and then connected with the story of Lazarus. Okay. So in Genesis, God told us of how sin entered into the world and he told us of the consequences and how those consequences were going to be reversed. In the Garden of Eden, God begins to introduce himself to man, to introduce Jesus Christ in types and shadows. God begins to introduce himself. But when he introduces himself, 
he introduces himself in the manner of salvation, in the context of sin. So the gospel is not necessarily about saving men. The gospel is not a get out of jail card per se, but it is the revelation of the power and glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay. So it is in salvation that God comes and reveals himself to men. And this was the only way that he could be known. God was only going to be known and to display his glory in the context of sin and salvation. So let us work this understanding and put the puzzle pieces together. Genesis 2, verses 15 to 17. I'm going to be quoting back and forth between the New King James and the New American Standard. And this one is from the New King James. Genesis 2, 15 to 17. Moses records and says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. See, the text says, In the day that you shall eat, not if you eat. Not if you think about eating, but in the day that you shall eat, you shall surely die. And that to me is a very clear statement. It's a declarative statement of fact of what was going to happen. Adam, you are going to eat of the tree. And when you do, you are going to die. It is in my calendar. It's going to happen. God in that statement in Genesis 2.17 was not doing weather forecasting. God is not a meteorologist. He is not a weather forecaster. God is not an economist. He does not work on Wall Street. He was not saying that there was a 70% chance or 90% chance that it would rain in the Garden of Eden. He was not saying Adam had a good chance that he would eat or not eat from the tree. God said, Adam, in the day that you shall eat, in the day that you shall eat, you shall surely die. When God speaks, he speaks 100% the way things are going to be. Why and how? Not because he has good foresight. Not because he has this long telescope of time that he can look into and see what was going to happen. God speaks with such clarity because he knows all things and because all things are from him and through him and to him. He knows the end of things from their beginning because he ordained, decreed all things that come to pass. And so Jesus, who knew the God of the Bible, who is also the God of the Bible, when he came, he said something to the effect of the Son of Man goes by the way that has been determined for him. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, was to go the way of the cross as was determined for him. Determined by who? Determined by the Father. 
the way determined by the Father. Jesus was always to come and go the way of the cross. Life and righteousness were always to come the way that was determined by God from eternity. And if the cross was determined from eternity for Christ, then sin was also determined to show up from eternity. If the cross was always the plan of bringing God's people to himself, then sin was always in the plan. For the cross does not happen, and the cross is useless if sin is not part of the plan. Jesus was not God's plan B to recover men from their naughtiness. When we come with an understanding of the gospel that makes Jesus plan B, that makes God as one who responds to the actions of his creatures, then we begin to talk about a God who is not the God of the Bible. As I always say, there are no fire trucks in heaven, and Jesus is not a fire marshal. If there's fire anywhere, it is because God determined for it to happen. Otherwise, it would not have happened. So the gospel story, the salvation story, is God's eternal purpose in his son from eternity. God was always going to reveal Christ to us this way. And we were always going to come before him with the righteousness of his son and no other way. And so to that, Apostle Peter, on the day of Pentecost, would say this in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, Acts 4, 27 and 28, Apostle Peter says, For truly in this city, They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And apostles like Peter, John, Paul, they did not apologize for God's sovereignty. They did not have any problems declaring God's sovereignty. For him, that's just like the ABCs of talking about God. <laughs> so Apostle Peter is saying, Jesus Christ went on the cross by the hand of God, and that means by the will and purpose of God. This is what God predestined to be done, and to predestinate means to arrange beforehand and so God arranged beforehand that his son, his Christ, was to be put on the cross by the hands of sinful men. Why? Because that was God's will in the way that he determined for our salvation. Why? That his name and power may be known. This aspect of the gospel is not really understood by people. Because many reduce the gospel to just some soup kitchen type experience. People who have nothing to eat, they come to the soup kitchen and they get something to eat. There's no glory in soup kitchen experience. The gospel is about glory. First and foremost, it's all about glory. From the beginning to the end, it's all about glory. God is wanting to make his name and power known, as he said about Pharaoh, for this reason I raised you up that I may make my power known. And the power of God cannot be known 
outside salvation. And that is why the scriptures say the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. God cannot be known outside the appearance of Christ in salvation. And so as soon as God created man, he began to introduce himself, not by taking Adam on a golf outing, but in terms of salvation. As soon as God begins to create, he begins to preach the gospel. Genesis 1, 16 to 18. It's going to make sense. It's a long introduction with a lot of pieces, but it's going to come together. That's the goal. <laughs> Genesis 1, 16 to 18. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So God made two great lights, that is the sun and the moon. The sun is the greater light to rule the day and the moon, the lesser light to rule the night. And these lights were to rule on earth and not on any other planet, not on Mars or any other planet. And they were to divide the light from the darkness. Why? Because the natural state of planet earth is darkness. Because planet earth does not produce light of its own. Whatever light we have comes from the sun. And so the natural state of all those born on this planet, born on this earth, is not light, but darkness. And this natural darkness of planet earth is also the natural spiritual condition of all who are born in it. This is the spiritual darkness that did not comprehend the light of the Logos, the light of the word of God, who is God when he came. It is this darkness that did not receive him. And not only that, the moon shines some light, but the moon, like earth, is naturally a dark place. The moon has no light of its own. It only reflects the light of another by reason of its position. It reflects the light of the sun to those who are in darkness on the earth. So the moon is not the sun. It only has the shadow of the sun. So as a spiritual application, I'm going to develop this some more, but as a spiritual application, we have people who shine, who reflect the light of others by reason of their position to that person. By reason of their position to the person who has the light of the gospel. And this is what I'm saying. Children can appear to have their own light when they still have their parents. And yet it's not their own light. They are only reflecting the light of their parents who are saved. But when they are left to themselves, you realize that the light that they seem to have was not their own. It was only a reflection of the parents' light on them. 
So they appeared like they were born again. They appeared like they were saved. And only later, they disappear and they leave the faith. And people say, oh, they lost their salvation. No, they never lost their salvation. They were never born again. They were only shining light of their parents in the light of the gospel. And this is why you should not be quick to baptize and label children as Christians until they have been born again and they are making their own confession of who Christ is and standing on the righteousness of Christ alone. But there's a bigger theological gospel picture in that teaching from Genesis 1, 16 and 18. Listen to Hebrews 10 verse 1. Hebrews 10 verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. The law having only a shadow of the good things to come. The moon has only the shadow of the good things to come. The sun and not the very image of the things. The moon is not the sun. It only reflects the light of the sun. It testifies that the sun is there and is coming and it actually is the source of light. The moon does not possess light itself. Light is not intrinsic to it. Light is not intrinsic to its nature. So, Because of that, it could never sustain life here on earth. The life here on earth is not sustained by the light that comes from the moon, but from the sun. So the sun is what sustains physical life here on earth, if you are talking biologically. Now God was already preaching the gospel from the beginning because the moon is a picture of the law. The law only had a shadow of the things, of the good things to come and not the very image of the things and could not make those who approach God by his sacrifices perfect. The law had no life in itself. The law, no righteousness. The law, no forgiveness of sins. The law could never give a clean conscience. Those are things that the law cannot give you. It only had a shadow. It was reflecting the light of the one who was to come. The one who possessed the light in himself. So the sun is a picture of Christ and the gospel. It is only by the sun that plants have life. And it is only by the gospel and Jesus, the son of righteousness, that we also possess life. It is only by the light of the gospel that darkness is removed from these who are darkness dwellers. When the sun is up, when the sun is up, the moon has to fade away. The light from the moon has to fade away. Why? Because the glory of the sun is greater than the glory of the moon. They do not give light at the same time. And so the law had its purpose and function. Once the sun has risen, there's no more need of the light of the moon. The moon has to give way to the more brilliant light, to the full light, the light of the sun. So the law only reflected the shadow of Christ, but was not the end in itself. Christ is the end of the law 
for those who believe. And I wish people would understand that. Those who claim to still do the law. I don't think they get it. I don't think they get Christ. The moon shines. The moon shines. It's faint light when men are sleeping at night. Why? Because the law is only for those who have not seen the light of the gospel. But when the sun shines, it becomes day and it wakes men up to the light and life of Christ. And so the Lord would come and say in John eleven nine, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. If you are walking in the night of the law, in the night of law obedience, you are going to stumble. You have to walk in the light of Christ, in the light of the gospel. So the law is not the light of the world. Jesus could have easily said, or you have to walk in the law because the law is the light of the world. But he says, no, I am the light of this world. Jesus Christ is the son and light of this world. Genesis 3, verse 1 to 11. Very familiar story. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, you shall not eat, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took off its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the, Lord, of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree? of which I commanded you that you should not eat. Eve gets beguiled by the serpent, the devil, very cunning. And she ate. And then when she found out that it was good, she also gave, to, gave some to Adam. And Adam ate and both came under the same condition of death and condemnation. They both discovered that they were naked. But let's think about this story beyond just looking at it as a story, as a lot of people do. When you read this story to get understanding, you have to approach it as a telling of the gospel. The mystery of the gospel is in this story. Why is it that the offense of eating from the tree was not reckoned to Eve? There's nowhere in the scriptures, in the New Testament, 
that reckons the eating of the tree to Eve. The Bible says condemnation came by Adam, by the disobedience of one man, and not of Eve. Eve is the one who ate from the tree first. I think that was very purposeful. That was very purposeful arrangement by God. Listen to Romans 5.14. Apostle Paul writes and says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Adam is a type of him who was to come, Jesus Christ. So if Adam is a type of the one who was to come, then it means or it follows that Eve was a type of the church, the bride of Christ. So it is important then that Eve was the one who had to eat first and not Adam. Why? Because it is us who sinned and not Christ. So it was Eve who was first condemned. Eve was already condemned before Adam ate. Then Adam came and he ate only to join himself to the condemnation of his bride. And this is very important because if Adam does not come and eat, Eve alone is condemned and she is condemned forever by herself. But God said something that is very important that will help us with our understanding in Genesis 2.18. God said, and the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And so, when Eve ate of the hanging fruit, she immediately came under condemnation of Genesis 2.17 that says, In the day that you shall eat, you shall surely die. But at one point, immediately after Eve had eaten of the tree, Adam was still innocent because they did not eat at the same time. And so Adam at some point was not under condemnation. And this way, he stood as a type of Christ. He was innocent and his bride was already condemned. And so Christ was innocent, holy, and undefiled, and his bride, the church, was already condemned because of their sin. And so the only way he could continue to be with his bride, the only way that Adam could remain with his bride, was to join her in her condemnation. For the two shall become one and inseparable. They shall be joined together. They shall be joined together in condemnation and they shall be joined together in justification. So Adam, the innocent one, had to eat also that which condemned his wife that he may possibly reverse the condemnation that was on her. So Adam eats the fruit that he may be condemned together with his wife. And I'm thinking, he's not thinking this. But God's picture, the picture that God is painting is the willingness that Christ had to come and enter into the same condemnation of his bride that he may redeem it. See that the condemnation of, of Eve was reckoned in Adam. And so the condemnation of the bride of Christ 
the church was also reckoned in Christ. It is Jesus Christ, the righteous, who joined himself to the condemnation of his bride, the church. And so the sin of his bride, the church, was imputed to him. Jesus, unlike Adam, Jesus did not sin by way of disobedience. Jesus only became unrighteous by imputation. Our sins were put on him. He became guilty by imputation, not because of anything that he did himself. So he becomes guilty and suffers condemnation that he may not be separated forever from his bride that the father gave to him. And so he comes and he takes up human flesh that he may die in the place of his bride. So the disobedience or obedience of the bride was reckoned in their representative husband, Eve in Adam and the church in Christ. Jesus is the last Adam, the second Adam, who comes and removes the condemnation that was on his bride and he imputes his righteousness to her. Ephesians 5, 25-32 Apostle Paul says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And that's quoting from Genesis. Apostle Paul says, all this understanding is coming from Genesis. And he says, this mystery is great. The mystery of marriage, the mystery of husband and wife is great. It's not about marriage. It's not about raising children. The mystery of marriage is about preaching the gospel. And so he says, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So this was preaching the relationship that Christ has with his bride, the church. So how did Adam love his wife? By joining himself to her sin and condemnation, and that was the sacrifice. How did Jesus love his church? By joining himself to the condemnation of his bride and dying for her. And this mystery is great. And that was the mystery of what happened in the Garden of Eden, the mystery of the gospel that we now preach and have believed upon. And so Genesis 3, 7, I believe, Genesis 3, 7. Listen to Genesis 3, 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sawed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. When Adam and Eve realized that they were both naked, and that means they were opened to the reality that they did not have any righteousness, they tried to create their own righteousness. Adam and Eve were men of the dust. 
Though they were created good and innocent, they were not intrinsically righteous and infallible. Their innocence could be lost, and we know that because they lost it. (laughs) So there is nothing called a covenant of works with Adam, by which if Adam had obeyed and not eaten from the tree, then God on that basis would have given us life. That is not true. There was never any covenant to that effect. Adam was only given as a picture of the true Adam who was to come. Adam was only given to set the stage of Christ who was coming. Christ is the one who from eternity had the covenant of grace. It is he as our surety and mediator and representative was going to give us life and righteousness, not Adam. But listen to this. The fall of Adam was to reveal to Adam and Eve and all the posterity in Adam that they needed the righteousness of another. That is, they needed Jesus Christ. When Adam and Eve sinned, they realized immediately that they needed a covering and so they sawed together fig leaves and made themselves coverings and the first fig leaf free will Baptist church was formed. We're just two members, just two members. But now it has grown to become a worldwide phenomenon, a mega church of about 7 billion people. That's how big the Fig Leaf Baptist Church is. Some still meet in some buildings, but largely everyone else who have not believed the gospel of grace goes to Fig Leaf Baptist Church. So verse 8, listen to this, verse 8 of Genesis 3. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord comes walking in the garden and we are told in the cool of the day and not in the heat of the day. The heat of the day, to my way of thinking, would suppose that there was no hope for them. Because that would be speaking as it were to the anger of God. But the cool of the day, I suppose that God was saying God's righteous anger would be propitiated one day in some real way by his own provision, not their fig leaves. There was hope for them. There was hope for Adam and Eve. Verse 9, then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? You have to pay attention to this one. Where are you? And this is the first question that God ever asked man after they sinned. Where are you? Now that is a God who looks for his sheep and recovers them. It is God who always comes to seek and find that which was lost, the good shepherd of the sheep. Men do not ever seek God first. Men always run away from God. It has never happened that a man would say, oh, today is boring. I think I'm going to try and find Jesus. It has never happened. God always initiates salvation and everything. And if we are willing to accept the God who was walking in the cool of the day was the Lord himself, Jesus Christ. It is he who was walking in the cool of the day. But Mr. Adam tried to give a half-spirited defense for himself. 
And so he blamed his wife for the curse that was already on him. Adam wanted to throw Eve under the bus. (laughs) But pay attention to what is happening in the story. The Lord God did not come looking for the devil. And he did not ask the devil for an explanation of what was going on. Why? Because the devil had no provision for salvation to be recovered from the curse of his sin. God never purposed to save fallen angels. That was never in his plan. Why? Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2. Go to Hebrews 2, 14 to 18. The writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews 2, 14 to 18, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Listen to verse 16. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted, who are tempted by the devil. So there was a provision of salvation in the case of Eve and Adam, but not in the case of the devil. Jesus was not revealed to give help to fallen angels, of which the devil is the chief fallen angel. So Genesis 3.16 says to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So as God is pronouncing the curses, see that the curses were pronounced on the devil, on Eve and on Adam. And with each curse, there was something that was preached about Christ. With the devil, he preached about the bruising of the hill and the conflict with the seed. Now, When it comes to Eve, he talks about bearing children and and the agony and sorrow that Eve has to have as she brings forth children. But what was that talking about? This was all talking about Jesus because in sorrow, Jesus Christ is he who was to bring forth children to God. John 16, 21. Jesus knows all this theology. He knows all this story of what happened in the garden. And in John 16, 21, talking about his own impending glorification of the cross, he says, A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come, but as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world. So Jesus pictures himself as a woman who is in sorrow, who is in great labor pains, who is about to deliver a child. That's Jesus' understanding. That's the picture that he has as he is approaching the cross. Jesus sees himself as pregnant. 
as a picture. He sees himself as the mother from whom all the children who belong to God are going to be birthed. So listen to Isaiah 53, 10 to 11. Isaiah 53, 10 to 11. Isaiah says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. I'm going to make commentary on verse 10 before I get to 11. So Isaiah says, It pleased the Lord to bruise Christ. So the bruising and the smiting of Christ being put to grief on the cross were the sorrows of the curse that were pronounced on Eve in childbearing. Those curses on Eve have their fulfillment in Christ. Eve was supposed to bring forth children to God made in Adam's image because remember when Adam was made, was formed, He was made after the image of God. But after the fall, all the children that they had were not in the image of the first, the Adam who had not sinned, but they were after the likeness of the fallen Adam. Okay, So Eve failed to bring forth children to God. And so Jesus is he who now has to come and bring forth children to God who are made after the image of the Son of God, predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Jesus comes and he rescues Eve, as it were, but in the process, his heel gets bruised by the serpent as God pronounced in the curse against the devil. And so Isaiah Continue and say in Isaiah 53, 11, He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify the many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And God says, He shall see the labor, not of Eve, in bringing forth children, but of Christ. The labor of Christ, not the labor of Eve. God is only pleased by the labor of Christ as he brought forth children who belong to God. And that is why, if you remember from John 1, verses 12 and 13, that those who received Christ were those who were born, not of the will of man, not of the flesh, nor of blood, but of God. So now when Christ goes on the cross, he is going to deliver children who were born of God, not of the will of man. Listen to this. God says, He shall see the labor of Christ and be satisfied. Now, that labor was not a stillbirth. It did not cause a stillbirth. It was not a miscarriage. And so, God was satisfied with the labor of Christ. And so, Christ will see his seed that he gave birth to. If you have a miscarriage in this Eastern type culture, you typically do not get to see the miscarried baby. You have the baby and is buried. But with respect to Christ, because this is very Eastern, with respect to Christ, the contrast is Christ did not have a miscarriage of his labor. It is saying the pregnancy of Christ went full term and the children that he had in his womb were successfully delivered by him on the cross, which means God the Father was pleased with the work that Christ did to redeem his people. 
And so Jesus handled his seed as a child, the church, and he was satisfied. So this was a picture, a telling of the gospel that was to come. Let's go to Genesis 3.21. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. The devil has been condemned already and the devil is not even given an opportunity to repent. Very, very, very important. Because when you come to Christ, you repent to Christ. You repent to the righteousness of Christ. Adam and Eve were given opportunity to repent to Christ, to acknowledge their sin. The devil was not given, was not granted the grace to repent. So repentance and faith are gifts of God. It's God who causes them in those who are to inherit eternal life. Listen to this. So the, the making of the tunics of skin and the clothing of Adam and Eve by them was the promise of the new creation. It was the promise of the new provision of covering for sin. The old creation, the old creation was already plunged into darkness because of sin. And God shows that there was still hope for the sinful man and how that darkness was going to be removed. The darkness was going to be removed by the death of something. Initially, the death of an animal, but this animal was not killed by Adam and Eve. It's a sacrifice that was killed by God himself as a type of Christ and the tunics of skin were made for Adam and Eve by God himself. And not only that, it is he who clothed them and covered their shame. And so the alienation that happened between Adam and God was only to be reconciled by what God was going to do himself in his true and ultimate provision and sacrifice the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus Christ. So the tunics made from the sacrifice of Christ are what God has used to cover us from our sins. So the tunics of skin that God used to cover Adam and Eve were only a picture of the righteousness of Christ that came only by his death. You see, there's death there. You can't have the animal skins without death. So the righteousness of Christ only comes to us because of his death. And that righteousness was preached by God in the pronouncement of the curse on Adam. Genesis 3, 17 to 19. And I think that will be our last text from Genesis Listen to this. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. You have to read that in the context of the gospel. I want you to see the themes that are in the case of Adam, that are found in Christ. We have death. Christ had to die because of imputed sin. Toil. 
He learned obedience by the things that he suffered. That's the right of Hebrews. Sweat. Great drops of blood that were like sweat in the garden of Gethsemane. Thorns and thistles. The crown of thorns that was on Christ's head. And we have the seed. The topic of the seed permeates the theology of Apostle Paul in Galatians. Christ is the seed of Abraham. So the fulfillment of the seed, not seeds, is all traced to Christ himself. So Jesus is the second and last Adam who goes and suffers that curse. It is he who became the curse. It is he who sweated great drops of blood in bitter agony. It is he who won a crown of thorns, the thorns and thistles. It is he who was hanged on another tree until he was dead. It is he who was placed in the dust to be buried after his own death. His burial, but only to resurrect because this is not the first Adam. This is the second Adam. Jesus Christ is the man from heaven. He is the spiritual man and death does not have a hold on him. But he comes and he experiences the curse that was on Adam as to reverse it. Romans 3, 19-26. Apostle Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Adam was not under the law of Moses. The law of Moses came later when the children of Israel were taken out of their bondage in Egypt. Adam was under the law of the tree, Genesis 2.17, in the day that you shall eat, you shall surely die. And that commandment was given to stop the mouth of Adam that he should be guilty before God. See, that tells you and I that the fall was not an accident. Adam's mouth, like my mouth, like your mouth, had to be stopped from boasting, just like the mouth of everybody else. If it applies to you today, it applied to Adam then. Every mouth has to be stopped. And so, Apostle Paul says in Romans 3.20, Therefore, 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 now that the mouth has been stopped, <laughs> therefore, by the deeds of the law, by the obedience of Adam, shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Adam was not under the covenant of works, as I said, by which he could have obeyed and obtained life for himself and his descendants. That is not true. The commandment that was given to Adam was not for life. It was to give Adam the knowledge of sin. Adam could not be justified by his own obedience. Yes, like I said, Adam was created good, but he was not Jesus Christ. And no one can be justified by any obedience that does not come from Christ because Christ gives us the righteousness of God. And you need to possess the righteousness of God, which is apart from any works of righteousness. Verse 21, Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So the law, the first five books of, of the Bible, 
are witnessing the righteousness of God. So when we go into the story of the Garden of Eden, we are seeing a witnessing of the righteousness of God apart from the obedience of Adam. So the gospel is the righteousness of God that is apart from the obedience of man, any kind of man. Verse 22, 23, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How did we all fall short of the glory of God? We sinned in Adam. So you see, there is Adam right there in the picture. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So once all men had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, they only had one option left to live, and that is to be justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Salvation has to come freely. God has to reckon it to you freely. And by the redemption, that is by the merits of Jesus Christ. And that redemption is what God was preaching in the death of the animal that provided the tunics that he used to cover Adam and Eve. Verse 25 and 26 of Romans 3. Whom God set forth as a propitiation, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. So the coming of Christ was for the purpose of demonstrating his righteousness. The fall of Adam was for the purpose of demonstrating his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed right from Adam. To demonstrate at the present time. So you see the demonstration right there. We have the word used twice in verse 25 and 26. To demonstrate his righteousness. And in verse 26. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. That he might be just in the justifier of the one who is faith in Jesus. So the object of faith. The object of the righteousness that actually gives life is Jesus not Adam. So the righteousness of God in Christ is what was being testified of by the story of Adam and Eve. And that righteousness has now been revealed or manifested in Christ Jesus through the redemption that is not in the tunics of skins made of animals, but the shed blood of Christ. And God was in this story making a witness of that righteousness through Adam and Eve. And so the law and the prophets here is in reference to the whole Old Testament. So in the present time, we have a complete picture of what those things were in Genesis. It was so that God would at the present time demonstrate his righteousness that he might be just in removing the condemnation that was on you. And that he may be able to justify you and remain righteous. I just want to explain a word that Apostle Paul uses. He uses the word mystery. The mystery of the gospel. 
the understanding of mystery does not mean that something that is hard to understand. That's how we use it. But that's not how Apostle Paul is using it. The Greek word mysterion means it's a revelation of an unrevealed truth. It's a truth that was always known by God, but is now in time been opened up for us to see. So the gospel can be understood. It's not saying the mystery of the gospel cannot be understood. It's saying when you were reading Genesis, you were reading First Samuel, Second Samuel, that's not what you came up with. That was not understood to be teaching that. They thought, oh, we are talking about King David. Or they thought we are talking about Elijah. They thought we're talking about Moses. They thought about the feast in the tabernacle. But the real mystery was in Christ Jesus and the gospel. Now, so that takes us to our text. So as you can imagine, we won't be staying much in our text. We won't be staying much in our text. Since we already labored in our text from this last sermon. John 11, 1 to 6. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore, the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and his sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Lazarus is he who was loved of Christ. And Lazarus was the brother of Martha and Mary, whom also Jesus loved. And this one is he who had a sickness and was at the point of death. And so the message was sent to the Lord to inform him that, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. So it was supposed that Jesus knew exactly who it is who was sick. For they did not mention the name. He whom you love is sick. But the Lord in response said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. The sickness of Lazarus was not unto death. Jesus says there's a twofold revelation of the glory of God. The sickness of Lazarus was to the glory of God. And not only that, it was also to the glory of the Son. It was for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it in the salvation of Lazarus. And so the command that Adam would die if he ate from that tree was not unto a permanent death. It was not unto a permanent death for Adam and those who were loved of God that were in him. The sickness that came to the elect of Christ because of sin was not unto death. It was not unto permanent destruction. And we make a distinction that this only is true for those who are elect. Those who are elect who fell in Adam, their sickness was not unto death. Only the devil 
His angels and the nine elect have a sickness that is unto death. The death of humanity in Adam was not the end of God's interest in creation. And it was not God's interest in giving Adam the commandment that killed him and all those in him. God's chief interest was not the misery of Adam. The fall of Adam was not to lead unto death for all those that the Lord loves. Adam fell that Christ would be glorified in the salvation of his people. The fall of Adam brought man into the sickness of sin. The elect of God were all born and will all be born in Adam. There's none who is elect who is outside the first Adam. All the elect are born with the sickness of the first Adam, but they also are in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. But there's something that is important that happens for the elect of God They are loved of God even in their sickness. And and, and so Lazarus was loved of Jesus even though he was sick. And so all the elect are born in, in the sickness of sin. But the Lord says their sickness is not unto death. Death is not the final commentary on them. Their condemnation is not unto death. God has a purpose with their sin and their sickness. It is for his glory and the glory of Jesus Christ. See that the Lord Jesus delayed to come for two more days. When Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, instead of actually getting on the road to go and prevent the death of Lazarus, he stayed two more days. And the text says, Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. That does not make sense. How can you, after you have heard the message that the one that you love is on the point of death, how do you purposefully then delay to come to their aid? God delayed the redemption of his people. When Adam sinned, he did not immediately redeem humanity. He did not. Christ did not come and die then. God delayed the redemption of his people, but he kept preaching the promise of redemption in types and shadows. Christ was only to come in the appointed time. And so the Lord delayed to come because he can only come to raise Lazarus in the fullness of the time that was appointed by him, by the Father. At the time that was appointed for him to glorify God, Jesus shows up. And Apostle Paul says in Galatians 4, verse 4 to 5, we are almost done. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So in the fullness of time, Brother Randy, this is the beauty of having a small church. We're going to be talking about Christ for the next three hours. We don't have to worry. And we have a lot of food here. (laughs) This is one of the biggest blessings that I have. I, I don't have to worry about. But, but, but we're almost done, okay? 
in the fullness of time, in the appointed time, God sent forth his son to redeem those who were under the law, those whom he loves, these who are individually loved of the Lord, that he may redeem them from the law, that he may adopt them as sons. See that John is very purposeful to say, Jesus loved Lazarus. He loved Mary and he loved Martha. The Holy Spirit could have easily said, Jesus loved the family of Lazarus. Did not say that. So I think that is purposeful in the language of salvation because election is individual election. The Lord loved Lazarus for Lazarus. He didn't love Lazarus because of Mary. He loved Mary because he loved Mary. And he loved Martha because he loved Martha. So all those who belong to Christ, he loves individually. He loves them by name and he says, I know my sheep and I call them by name. Why? Because he knows them. He has that intimate relationship and knowledge and love for his people. Okay. So you and I and everyone who gets saved, they only get saved in the time that God appointed for Jesus to come to save them. For the time that was appointed for them to be raised up. Let's get to the finishing touches. So what, what, what is my larger point? Because I dwelt at length in Genesis and trying to show you that this same gospel was being preached by God right from the beginning. And my point is that sin did not come by accident into the world. Because I see a lot of people, when it comes to sin, they just don't know how to preach it in a way that glorifies Christ. They really stumble and they end up denying some very clear things that we know about the glory of Christ. So if sin did not come by accident into the world, Lazarus' sickness was not by accident either. It was not because it just so happened to be some very hungry viruses that just happened to overwhelm Lazarus. No, God appointed that in the fall of man, he would introduce himself through the person of Christ. He would introduce himself to creation and that in that introduction, Christ will be glorified and God will be glorified in redeeming them. So the sickness of Lazarus was not unto death because Lazarus was loved of the Lord. That's, you see what is happening? Jesus says the sickness of Lazarus is not unto death because he loves Lazarus. And if you have believed on the gospel, it also means your sickness is not unto death. Your sickness prepares you to see the glory of the resurrecting power of Christ. Because you see, when Christ went to the graveyard, he did not raise everybody there. He only raised Lazarus. And when he raised Lazarus, he said very specifically, Lazarus come forth. And that was a very particular command. He was not raised in a group. Lazarus was not saved in an order call. He was called by the Lord himself. The gospel of election according to grace says, the sickness of sin is not unto death to all those that the Lord loves. Why? 
John 6, 39 and 40, Jesus says, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So Jesus Christ is not a hired hand, and so he will not lose his sheep. He will not let any of his sheep be destroyed because of the sickness that was brought to them by Adam. The father wills that all those that he gave to the son will come to him and that he will lose nothing. And if the son will lose anyone, it means that all those that belong to him will die and that means Jesus was a hireling and Jesus is a hireling and we don't believe that theology. We don't believe in a theology that has a Jesus who loses any one of his ship. All the ship will have to come because his promise to all his ship is that this sickness is not unto death, but is to the glory of God. And so the death of Lazarus, and this may be kind of a little bit of introduction into what we're going to be talking about next week. And so the death of Lazarus is the signal to Jesus to say, the time of the work of the new creation has come. And so Lazarus gets sick and he dies and he is raised that he may be a rehearsal of that work that was prefiguring the types and shadows and curses in the Garden of Eden, the redemption by the seed of the woman who has to now be bruised on the hill. But remember, this miracle is the last recorded miracle that Jesus performed before he went on the cross. So it's a very important miracle in the fact that it's preaching a death and resurrection. So Jesus has to be hung on the tree as the fruit that was hung on another tree in the Garden of Eden. Do you see? And these who eat of this fruit hung on Mount Calvary by faith reverse the judgment of condemnation that is on them. And so Jesus has to be planted into the dust as the grain of wheat because he has to recover all those that the Father gave to him and be buried and resurrect with them. Like Lazarus, the sickness that was on Jesus was not unto death. Jesus had our sicknesses. He carried our infirmities. He carried our sins. And so because of that, he was overcome by death, but the Holy One could not see corruption. Jesus could not remain dead. It was impossible for him to see corruption and remain in the grave. And so the statement of sickness, not unto death, was a repudiation by Jesus of saying, no, death is no hold on all those that I love, it has no hold on me and it has no hold on all those who I shall raise in the resurrection to life. Jesus was defying death and he was promising you and I and all who believe that in him there is no sickness that leads to death. Why? Because he said, truly, truly, I said to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has 
eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Amen. I'm done. That was long. It wasn't? No, you're flattering me. It was okay. <laughs> okay, let us pray and dismiss. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your holy throne again to thank you, Lord, for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the promise of the gospel that for those whom the Lord loves, this sickness is not unto death. And that's the wonderful news of the gospel. Why? Because Christ overcame death on behalf of his people. So death has no more say on all those who are in him. And Lord, we just thank you for that testimony because we need it. And sometimes we forget it because of all the things that we deal with in our life and in our flesh. And we forget the hope of the gospel. Lord, I just pray, Lord, that you would bring remembrance to your people of some of the things that we shared this morning. That they may grow on them, that they may feed on them, that they may cherish them and rejoice that they are not consumed because of Christ. Lord, we pray for all those who shall listen to this message. May you also bless them. Lord, may you keep Brother Randy as he drives back to Kentucky. May you grant him safe passage. And we pray, Lord, for Brother Sean also. Thank you for bringing him here to be with us and to fellowship with us and to share the same testimony of the gospel. We thank you for everyone who has ever been here in one way or the other. When they came to hear, support, and exhort us and to learn the things of Christ, Lord, we know they only come because you send them our way. So, Lord, we thank you. We praise you. Thank you for this day again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.